Good evening. I hope you've had a wonderful day today. Welcome to BVJ's Bedtime Stories. My name is Big Voice Jay, and this is a show where we get you ready for a great night's sleep with some old familiar stories that you haven't heard in a while. Links to every story can be found in the show notes at our website, bedtimewithbvj.com. Tonight's story, The Gorgon's Head, by Nathaniel Hawthorne. Beneath the porch of the country seat called Tanglewood, one fine autumnal morning, was assembled a merry party of little folks, with a tall youth in the midst of them. They had planned a nutting expedition, and were impatiently waiting for the mists to roll up the hill slopes and for the sun to pour the warmth of the Indian summer over the fields and pastures, and into the nooks of the many-colored woods. There was a prospect of as fine a day as ever gladdened the aspect of this beautiful and comfortable world. As yet, however, the morning mist filled up the whole length and breadth of the valley, above which, on a gently sloping eminence, the mansion stood. This body of white vapor extended to within less than a hundred yards of the house. It completely hid everything beyond that distance, except a few ruddy or yellow treetops, which there and here emerged and were glorified by the early sunshine, as was likewise the broad surface of the midst. Four or five miles off to the southward rose the summit of Monument Mountain and seemed to be floating on a cloud. Some fifteen miles farther away, in the same direction, appeared the loftier dome of Taconic, looking blue and indistinct, and hardly so substantial as the vapory sea that almost rolled over it. The nearer hills which bordered the valley were half-submerged, and were specked with little cloud-wreaths all the way to their tops. On the whole, there was so much cloud and so little solid earth that it had the effect of a vision. The children above mentioned, being as full of life as they could hold, kept overflowing from the porch of Tanglewood, and scampering along the gravel walk or rushing across the dewy herbage of the lawn. I can hardly tell how many of these small people there were, not less than nine or ten, however, not more than a dozen of all sorts, sizes, and ages, whether girls or boys. They were brothers, sisters, and cousins, together with a few of their young acquaintances, who had been invited by Mr. and Mrs. Pringle to spend some of this delightful weather with their own children at Tanglewood. I am afraid to tell you their names, or even to give them any names which other children have ever been called by, because, to my certain knowledge... Authors sometimes get themselves into great trouble by accidentally giving the names of real persons to the characters in their books. For this reason, I mean to call them Primrose, Periwinkle, Sweet Fern, Dandelion, Blue Eye, Clover, Huckleberry, Cowslip, Squash Blossom, Milkweed, Plantain, and Buttercup. Although, to be sure... Such titles might better suit a group of fairies than a company of earthly children. It is not to be supposed that these little folks were to be permitted by their careful fathers and mothers, uncles, aunts, or grandparents, 
to stray abroad into the woods and fields without the guardianship of some particularly grave and elderly person. Oh no, indeed. In the first sentence of my book, you will recollect that I spoke of a tall youth standing in the midst of the children. His name, and I shall let you know his real name, because he considers it a great honor to have told the stories that are here to be printed. His name was Eustace Bright. He was a student at Williams College, and had reached, I think, at this period, the venerable age of eighteen years, so that he felt quite like a grandfather towards periwinkle, dandelion, huckleberry, squash blossom, milkweed, and the rest, who were only half or a third as venerable as he. A trouble in his eyesight, such as many students think it necessary to have nowadays, in order to prove their diligence at their book, had kept him from college a week or two after the beginning of the term. But for my part, I have seldom met with a pair of eyes that looked as if they could see farther or better than those of Eustace Wright. This learned student was slender and rather pale, as all Yankee students are, but yet of a healthy aspect and as light and active as if he had wings to his shoes. By the by, being much addicted to wading through streamlets and across meadows, he had put on cowhide boots for the expedition. He wore a linen blouse, a cloth cap, and a pair of green spectacles, which he had assumed, probably, less for the preservation of his eyes than for the dignity that they imparted to his countenance. In either case, however, he might as well have let them alone, for Huckleberry, a mischievous little elf, crept behind Eustace as he sat on the steps of the porch, snatched his spectacles from his nose, and clapped them on her own, and as the student forgot to take them back, they fell off into the grass, and lay there till the next spring. Now, Eustace Bright, you must know, had won great fame among the children as a narrator of wonderful stories, and though he sometimes pretended to be annoyed when they teased him for more and more, and always for more, yet I really doubt whether he liked anything quite so well as to tell them. You might have seen his eyes twinkle, therefore, when clover, sweet fern, cowslip, buttercup, and most of their playmates besought him to relate one of his stories— while they were waiting for the mess to clear up. Yes, cousin Eustace, said Primrose, who was a bright girl of twelve, with laughing eyes and a nose that turned up a little. The morning is certainly the best time for the stories with which you so often tire out your patience. We shall be in less danger of hurting your feelings by falling asleep at the most interesting points, as little Cowslip and I did last night. Naughty Primrose! cried Cowslip, a child of six years old. I did not fall asleep, and I only shut my eyes, so as to see a picture of what Cousin Eustace was telling about. His stories are good to hear at night, because we can dream about them asleep, and good in the morning, too, because then we can dream about them awake. So I hope he will tell us one this very minute. Thank you, my little Cowslip, said Eustace. Certainly you shall have the best story I can think of, if it were only for defending me so well from that naughty primrose. But, children, I have already told you so many fairy tales that 
I doubt whether there is a single one which you have not heard at least twice over. I am afraid you will fall asleep in reality if I repeat any of them again. No, 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 cried Blue Eye, Periwinkle, Plantain, and half a dozen others. We like a story all the better for having heard it two or three times before. And it is a truth, as regards children, that a story seems often to deepen its mark in their interest, not merely by two or three, but by numberless repetitions. But Eustace Bright, in the exuberance of his resources, scorned to avail himself of an advantage which an older storyteller would have been glad to grasp at. It would be a great pity, said he, if a man of my learning, to say nothing of original fancy, could not find a new story every day, year in and year out, for children such as you. I will tell you one of the nursery tales that were made for the amusement of our great old grandmother, the Earth, when she was a child in frock and pinafore. There are a hundred such, and it is a wonder to me that they have not long ago been put into picture books for little girls and boys. But instead of that, old gray-bearded grandsires pore over them in musty volumes of Greek and puzzle themselves with trying to find out when and how and for what they were made. Well, 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 cousin Eustace, cried all the children at once. Talk no more about your stories, but begin. Sit down then, every soul of you, said Eustace Bright, and be all as still as so many mice. The slightest interruption, whether from great, naughty primrose, little dandelion, or any other, I shall bite the story short off between my teeth and swallow the untold part. But in the first place, do any of you know what a gorgon is? I do, said Primrose. Then hold your tongue, rejoined Eustace, who had rather she would have known nothing about the matter. Hold all your tongues, and I shall tell you a sweet, pretty story of a gorgon's head. And so he did, as you may begin to read on the next page. Working up his sophomorical erudition with a great deal of tact, and incurring great obligations to Professor Anton, he, nevertheless, disregarded all classical authorities whenever the vagrant audacity of his imagination impelled him to do so. The Gorgon's Head Perseus was the son of Danae, who was the daughter of a king. And when Perseus was a very little boy, some wicked people put his mother and himself into a chest and set them afloat upon the sea. The wind blew freshly and drove the chest away from the shore, and the uneasy billows tossed it up and down, while Danny clasped her child closely to her bosom and dreaded that some big wave would dash its foamy crest over them both. The chest sailed on, however, and neither sank nor was upset, until, when night was coming, it floated so near an island that it got entangled in a fisherman's nets, and was drawn out high and dry upon the sand. The island was called Seraphus, and it was reigned over by King Polydectes, who happened to be the fisherman's brother. This fisherman, I am glad to tell you, was an exceedingly humane and upright man, 
he showed great kindness to Danny and her little boy, and continued to befriend them until Perseus had grown to be a handsome youth, very strong and active and skilled in the use of arms. Long before this time, King Polydectes had seen the two strangers, the mother and her child, who had come to his dominions in a floating chest. As he was not good and kind like his brother the fisherman, but extremely wicked, he resolved to send Perseus on a dangerous enterprise in which he would probably be killed and then to do some great mischief to Danny herself. So this bad-hearted king spent a long while in considering what was the most dangerous thing that a young man could possibly undertake to perform. At last, having hit upon an enterprise that promised to turn out as fatally as he desired, he sent for the youthful Perseus. The young man came to the palace and found the king sitting upon his throne. Perseus? said King Polydectes, smiling craftily upon him. You are grown up a fine young man. You and your good mother have received a great deal of kindness from myself, as well as from my worthy brother the fisherman, and I suppose you would not be sorry to repay some of it. Please, your majesty, answered Perseus. I would willingly risk my life to do so. Well then, continued the king, still with a curving smile on his lips. I have a little adventure to propose to you. And as you are a brave and enterprising youth, you will doubtless look upon it as a great piece of good luck to have so rare an opportunity of distinguishing yourself. You must know, my good Perseus, I think of getting married to the beautiful Princess Hippodamia. And it is customary on these occasions to make the bride a present of some far-fetched and elegant curiosity. I have been a little perplexed, I must honestly confess, where to obtain anything likely to please a princess of her exquisite taste. But this morning, I flatter myself, I have thought of precisely the article. And how can I assist your majesty in obtaining it? cried Perseus eagerly. You can, if you are as brave a youth as I believe you are, replied King Polydectes, with the utmost graciousness of manner. The bridal gift which I have set my heart on presenting to the beautiful Hippodamia is the head of the Gorgon Medusa, with the snaky locks. And I depend on you, my dear Perseus, to bring it to me. So as I am anxious to settle affairs with the princess, the sooner you go in quest of the Gorgon, the better I shall be pleased. I will set out tomorrow morning, answered Perseus. Pray do so, my gallant youth, rejoined the king. And Perseus, in cutting off the Gorgon's head, be careful to make a clean stroke, so as not to injure its appearance. You must bring it home in the very best condition in order to suit the exquisite taste of the beautiful Princess Hippodamia. Perseus left the palace, but was scarcely out of hearing before Polydectes burst into a laugh, being greatly amused, wicked king that he was, to find how readily the young man fell into the snare. 
The news quickly spread abroad that Perseus had undertaken to cut off the head of Medusa with the snaky locks. Everybody was rejoiced, for most of the inhabitants of the island were as wicked as the king himself, and would have liked nothing better than to see some enormous mischief happen to Danae and her son. The only good man in this unfortunate island of Seraphus appears to have been the fisherman. As Perseus walked along, therefore, the people pointed after him and made mouths and winked to one another and ridiculed him as loudly as they dared. Ho, ho, cried they, Medusa's snakes will sting him soundly. Now, there were three gorgons alive at that period, and they were the most strange and terrible monsters that had ever been since the world was made, or that have been seen in after days, or that are likely to be seen in all time to come. I hardly know what sort of creature or hobgoblin to call them. They were three sisters and seemed to have borne some distant semblance to women, but were really a very frightful and mischievous species of dragon. It is, indeed, difficult to imagine what hideous beings these three sisters were. Why, instead of locks of hair, if you can believe me, they had each of them a hundred enormous snakes growing on their heads, all alive, twisting, wriggling, curling, and thrusting out their venomous tongues with forked stings at the end. The teeth of the gorgons were terribly long tusks. Their hands were made of brass, and their bodies were all over scales, which, if not iron, were something as hard and impenetrable. They had wings, too, and exceedingly splendid ones, I can assure you, for every feather in them was pure, bright, glittering, burnished gold, and it looked very dazzlingly, no doubt, when the gorgons were flying about in the sunshine. But when people happened to catch a glimpse of their glittering brightness aloft in the air, they seldom stopped to gaze, but ran and hid themselves as speedily as they could. You will think, perhaps, that they were afraid of being stung by the serpents that served the gorgons instead of hair, or of having their heads bitten off by their ugly tusks, or of being torn all to pieces by their brazen claws. Well, to be sure... These were some of the dangers, but by no means the greatest, nor the most difficult to avoid. For the worst thing about these abominable gorgons was that if once a poor mortal fixed his eyes upon one of their faces, he was certain that very instant to be changed from warm flesh and blood into cold and lifeless stone. This, as you will easily perceive, it was a very dangerous adventure that the wicked King Polydactes had contrived for this innocent young man. Perseus himself, when he had thought over the matter, could not help seeing that he had very little chance of coming safely through it, and that he was far more likely to become a stone image than to bring back the head of Medusa with the snaky locks. For, not to speak of other difficulties, there was one which it would have puzzled an older man than Perseus to get over. Not only must he fight with and slay this golden-winged, iron-scaled, long-tusked, brazen-clawed, snaky-haired monster, but he must do it with his eyes shut, or at least without so much as a glance at the enemy with whom he was contending. Else, while his arm was lifted to strike, 
He would stiffen into stone and stand with that uplifted arm for centuries until time and the wind and the weather should crumble him quite away. This would be a very sad thing to befall a young man who wanted to perform a great many brave deeds and to enjoy a great deal of happiness in this bright and beautiful world. So disconsolate did these thoughts make him that Perseus could not bear to tell his another what he had undertaken to do. He therefore took his shield, girded onto his sword, and crossed over from the island to the mainland, where he sat down in a solitary place and hardly refrained from shedding tears. But while he was in this sorrowful mood, he heard a voice close beside him. Perseus, said the voice, why are you sad? He lifted his head from his hands, in which he had hidden it, and behold, all alone as Perseus had supposed himself to be, there was a stranger in the solitary place. It was a brisk, intelligent, and remarkably shrewd-looking young man, with a cloak over his shoulders, an odd sort of cap on his head, a strangely twisted staff in his hand, and a short and very crooked sword hanging by his side. He was exceedingly light and active in his figure, like a person much accustomed to gymnastic exercises, and well able to leap or run. Above all, the stranger had such a cheerful, knowing, and helpful aspect, though it was certainly a little mischievous into the bargain, that Perseus could not help feeling his spirits grow livelier as he gazed at him. Besides, being really a courageous youth, he felt greatly ashamed that anybody should have found him with tears in his eyes, like a timid little schoolboy, when, after all, there might be no occasion for despair. So Perseus wiped his eyes and answered the stranger pretty briskly, putting on as brave a look as he could. "'I am not so very sad,' said he, "'only thoughtful about an adventure that I am undertaken.' "'Oh-ho!' answered the stranger." Well, tell me all about it, and possibly I may be of service to you. I have helped a good many young men through adventures that looked difficult enough beforehand. Perhaps you may have heard of me. I have more names than one, but the name of Quicksilver suits me as well as any other. Tell me what your trouble is, and we will talk the matter over and see what can be done. The stranger's words and manner put Perseus into quite a different mood. From his former one. He resolved to tell Quicksilver all his difficulties, since he could not easily be worse off than he already was, and very possibly his new friend might give him some advice that would turn out well in the end. So he let the stranger know, in few words, precisely what the case was, how that King Polydactes wanted the head of Medusa, with the snaky locks, as a bridal gift for the beautiful Princess Hippodamia and how that he had undertaken to get it for him, but was afraid of being turned into stone. "'And that would be a great pity,' said Quicksilver, with his mischievous smile. "'You would make a very handsome marble statue, it is true, and it would be a considerable number of centuries before you crumbled away. But, on the whole, one would rather be a young man for a few years than... A stone image for a great many. Oh, far rather, exclaimed Perseus, with the tears again standing in his eyes. And besides, 
What would my dear mother do if her beloved son were turned into a stone? Well, well, let us hope that the affair will not turn out so very badly, replied Quicksilver in an encouraging tone. I am the very person to help you if anybody can. My sister and myself will do our utmost to bring you safe through this adventure, ugly as it now looks. Your sister? repeated Perseus. Yes, my sister, said the stranger. She's very wise, I promise you. And as for myself, I generally have all my wits about me, such as they are. If you show yourself bold and cautious, and follow our advice, you need not fear being a stone image yet a while. But first of all, you must polish your shield till you can see your face in it as distinctly as in a mirror. This seemed to Perseus rather an odd beginning of the adventure, for he thought it of far more consequence than the shield should be strong enough to defend him from the gorgon's brazen claws, than that it should be bright enough to show him the reflection of his face. However, concluding that Quicksilver knew better than himself, he immediately set to work and scrubbed the shield with so much diligence and goodwill that it very quickly shone like the moon at harvest time. Quicksilver looked at it with a smile and nodded his approbation. Then taking off his own short and crooked sword, he girded it about Perseus, instead of the one which he had before worn. No sword but mine will answer your purpose, observed he. The blade has a most excellent temper and will cut through iron and brass as easily as through the slenderest twig. And now we will set out. The next thing is to find the three gray women who will tell us where to find the nymphs. The three gray women, cried Perseus, to whom this seemed only a new difficulty in the path of his adventure. Pray, who may the three gray women be? I never heard of them before. They are three very strange old ladies, said Quicksilver, laughing. They have but one eye among them and only one tooth. Moreover, you must find them out by starlight or in the dusk of the evening, for they never show themselves by the light either of the sun or moon. But, said Perseus, why should I waste my time with these three gray women? Would it not be better to set out at once in search of the terrible gorgons? No, no, answered his friend. There are other things to be done before you can find your way to the gorgons. There is nothing for it but to hunt up these old ladies, and when we meet with them, you may be sure that the gorgons are not a great way off. Come, let us be strong. Perseus by this time felt so much confidence in his companion's sagacity that he made no more objections and professed himself ready to begin the adventure immediately. They accordingly set out and walked at a pretty brisk pace, so brisk indeed that Perseus found it rather difficult to keep up with his nimble friend Quicksilver. To say the truth, he had a singular idea that Quicksilver was furnished with a pair of winged shoes, which, of course, helped him along marvelously. And then, too, when Perseus looked sideways at him, out of the corner of his eye, he seemed to see wings on the side of his head, although, if he turned a full gaze, there were no such things to be perceived, but only an odd kind of cap. But in all events, the twisted staff was evidently a great convenience to Quicksilver, and enabled him to proceed so fast that Perseus 
though a remarkably active young man, began to be out of breath. Here, cried Quicksilver, at last, for he knew well enough, rogue that he was, how hard Perseus found it to keep pace with him. Take you the staff, for you need it a great deal more than I. Are there no better walkers than yourself in the island of Seraphus? I could walk pretty well, said Perseus, glancing slyly at his companion's feet, if I had only a pair of winged shoes. We must see about getting you a pair, answered Quicksilver. But the staff helped Perseus along so bravely that he no longer felt the slightest weariness. In fact, the stick seemed to be alive in his hand and to lend some of its life to Perseus. He and Quicksilver now walked onward at their ease, talking very sociably together. And Quicksilver told so many pleasant stories about his former adventures and how well his wits had served him on various occasions that Perseus began to think him a very wonderful person. He evidently knew the world, and nobody is so charming to a young man as a friend who has that kind of knowledge. Perseus listened the more eagerly in the hope of brightening his own wits by what he heard. At last he happened to recollect that Quicksilver had spoken of a sister, who was to lend her assistance in the adventure which they were now bound upon. "'Where is she?' he inquired. "'Shall we not meet her soon?' "'All at the proper time,' said his companion. "'But this sister of mine, you must understand, "'is quite a different sort of character from myself. "'She is very grave and prudent, "'seldom smiles, never laughs, "'and makes it a rule not to utter a word "'unless she has something particularly profound to say. "'Neither will she listen to any but the wisest conversation.' Dear me, ejaculated Perseus, I shall be afraid to say a syllable. She is a very accomplished person, I assure you, continued Quicksilver, and has all the arts and sciences at her fingers' ends. In short, she is so immoderately wise that many people call her wisdom personified. But to tell you the truth, she has hardly vivacity enough for my taste and I think you would scarcely find her so pleasant a traveling companion as myself. She has her good points, nevertheless, and you will find the benefit of them in your encounter with the Gorgons. By this time it had grown quite dusk. They had now come to a very wild and desert place, overgrown with shaggy bushes, and so silent and solitary that nobody seemed ever to have dwelt or journeyed there. All was waste and desolate, in the gray twilight, which grew every moment more obscure. Perseus looked about him rather disconsolately and asked Quicksilver whether they had a great deal farther to go. Hist! Hist! whispered his companion. Make no noise. This is just a time and place to meet the three gray women. Be careful that they do not see you before you see them, for... Though they have but a single eye among the three, it is as sharp-sided as half a dozen common eyes. But what must I do, asked Perseus, when we meet them? We'll continue the story on our next episode. Thank you so much for listening. Good night. Diamond Club hopes you have enjoyed this program. (laughs)